0: It's the Dev Friday Show with Mark and Tim.
1: It is the Dev Friday Show, and yet again, I have forgotten to change the titles. So the YouTube title and the Twitter live title are incorrect. They're not even the right titles. And uh, I'll change them when we do the podcast, and, and when we put it on the podcast, we'll just say, forgot to change the titles yet again. Um, but we're here at least, right?
0: So there's that. Yeah, because this show is the definition of a work in progress, Tim.
1: That's the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Everything's, <laughs> every, you know, I do that on my commits. Like when I commit code to GitHub, do you use emojis when you commit code to,
0: to GitHub? I do not. Are you using a, you put oh, a little smile. yes.
1: Sm- yes.
0: Okay. What's your favorite emojis to use when you do well, your we commits? Well,
1: use, we use emojis for what it is. So if it is yeah. a work in progress commit, mm-hmm. it's going to have the little construction barrier. If mm, it fixes okay. a test, it's going to have a big check mark. I like that. Um, if it's a refactor, it's going to have the recycle symbol. If it's code that I'm sticking in there just to try to fix something, and I know it's terrible, I think you can guess what emoji we use for that. But yeah, we use, uh, if it's configuration, we put a run- <laughs> we put a wrench in there. So uh, I love putting emojis as the first character of my git commit, because it's really easy to see from a high level, like what type of commit is this? is this Do you have, have a card, hard refactor? Yeah. Do you have a hard, fast rule
0: of only one emoji per commit? Or do you allow for multiple emojis?
1: Um, I just use one at the top to describe, like, the first one, mm-hmm. um, to describe what uh, what concept is, is being committed. Um, if you go to gitmoji.dev, that's Ooh. the list that we work from, that I Ooh, work from. Interesting. So the artist palette is to improve structure, the form of the code. Occasionally, probably more often than I want, um, I have to use the ambulance emoji which is a critical hotfix, <laughs> you know, we'll do that. Um, yeah, yeah. So I learned something. I don't know, I I don't a, know why. Yeah. Once oh, again, I love, it. I love just
0: it. like just like it took me so long to get on the the GitHub uh, CLI. For some reason, I just ignored that for some reason. I felt stupid once I realized that actually exists. Uh, I, now I'm, now my world is opened up to emojis in my Git messages, even though I'm, it's amazing. Even though I'm primarily the only one that reads my Git messages, but you, you, you know, if I ever make some commits to our, <laughs> to our repo, you can see them too. Well, so you'll see them too. I'll, yeah. Yeah. Every new episode is a that. big
1: plus right by it.
0: I'll have to start doing that. Uh, and also too, I think with the, well, I know you can see though on GitHub. I wonder if, yeah, cause the, the windows terminal, which I use primarily f- when I'm at the command line and doing my commits and pushes and pulls and fetches and uh, merging. I don't know if it actually has emoji functionality built in. I don't know if it that's popped up. Or maybe it does. Yeah, it actually should. does.
1: Yeah, it does. Because so. I, I am very much a not going to commit the kind of colon, word, colon thing, which GitHub would support. And if you did mm-hmm. like, you know, colon, wrench, colon... GitHub would show that in some UIs as a wrench, but I actually use just the emoji, the actual Unicode emoji. And that should work uh, okay. everywhere yeah. you have emoji, you know, support. So, okay. Also going to say that this is going to be something... Now, Mark, you're going to love this. You're going to love this because now... I love everything you say to him. We've said, we've said this more more often than probably people want to hear, but the best audio is on the podcast. So you should go to develop, yeah, devfridayshow.com um, or... Pick up the feed in your favorite podcast, aggregate app, or whatever, because um, that has the best audio. But Mark does like to watch the replays on YouTube so he can see 4K of his camera. And I'll tell you this, Mark, you're going to have a blast today because I am making you... You're making me front and center. Front and center. It's going to be you. Full view, full screen. So oh, we're no. just letting Mark be the only one that we see on the screen for a while. And anybody who works with me knows that whenever my video mutes, that Are means one thing. Are you multitasking by
0: eating again it means during I our podcast? eating lunch during a meeting. Oh, my gosh. You know, you cannot schedule
1: this ahead of time and have I'm, your lunch hour before our is, podcast. This is tough. See, because I have a I have a meeting right before this. Well, it's supposed to end at, at 1230. Um, but it tends to go long, and that's okay because we got stuff we're trying to figure out. And uh, it's just life, man. It's just life. It's tough. I know. Well, Nobody see, wants but, to see me eat, though. I did this see, the other week.
0: Yeah, you see behind me though. I kind of went to. I've been trying some different OBS settings with my. Uh, because yeah, remember last week,
1: like-
0: I, I talked about how I was trying to get. I don't know. I was trying the green screen again, so I did the green screen last week, and I was trying it for my classes because it was you know finishing up the semester, and I was doing some some final classes, some some final lecture videos. So I was using the green screen a little bit there, but once again, it gets to. It's just like pulling out these lights and dealing with the green screen behind me, it kind of messes up the flow of the room. And I'm like, I don't know. So I got to wait. So what I've been trying to do now, I'm trying to look more professional with my setup. Cause I get, I get jealous of these YouTubers who do like, especially the developer YouTubers who really have slick backgrounds and kind of nice lighting and kind of, you know, has a really kind of nice ambiance in their room. And all I have is some bright <laughs> lit up display cases with some action figures. So I'm doing some kind of interesting things with um, the OBS filters and trying to do some like adjusting some like lighting and also trying to blur the background out a little bit. Because what I was trying I to see is, yeah. you know, can I get some better contrast, you know, because I want to kind of keep the key focus on me, Tim, on me in the videos, right? I want that's where I don't want the background. This is why I talk to my students all the time, my design class, you know, contrast is key when it comes to design, because you have to make sure you have a, a good a variation between the visibility of the foreground the background if you're using a mid-ground also to kind of figure that out too but you know figure out from a from a lighting perspective you know how which elements are clear which elements are maybe out of focus or just you know which has more focus you know within the frame or the page whatever you're designing so i'm trying to do that a little bit more with the video and i could do this if i actually went out and bought a nice camera that had a nice lens which you you are aware you know about this a little bit from Doing some photography and uh, thinking yeah, about yeah. like like lenses that would have a nice you know good focal length, and we could, you know could could um, could uh, keep the, the focus up close, and you have a nice kind of blurred out kind of background behind you. And if I spend a little bit of money for a camera, I could get this. But I'm trying to just with my Logitech webcam and with OBS filters, but, well, trying yeah, to hack this together. Why spend the money? If you
1: can do it with uh, with software, right? Yeah, because so 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 I see you have a little bit of a blur.
0: So the blur that I was able to get working that works pretty well, but still it's not perfect is to do like a motion blur so it's basically right. like a motion blur that kind of right, zooms right. out that's right. kind of the effect which i kind of want more of the Gaussian effect right So okay. more kind of the soft effect yeah, yeah. around me and i can do it take a little bit more work but i'm gonna have to do like a custom mask so i'm going to
1: get into like into gimp
0: or now photoshop your
1: exposure is a little different than normal too i don't know if that's the filter well, or what
0: yes yeah, so i was also kind of trying playing around with the the color grading to also, based on the lighting, because I do have some lights in front of me where the camera is, so mm-hmm. my face is lit up more, so trying to draw out more value from me and less from the background, so working with the color too, so I don't know, it's been kind of interesting. I think for the lecture videos or my class videos that I've been doing, I think it actually has been turning out, turning out well, but yeah, we'll see.
1: I do, uh, there's so many different... Directions to go here that I know are going to be very interesting to everybody who <laughs> is listening. Especially for
0: podcasts, there's nothing yeah, more enjoyable. All, yeah, talking about a video about setup. Stuff. That's exactly that right. That you, you know, you can just imagine when if you're listening back right. to this podcast, right. you can imagine it, but mm-hmm. you can't see yes, its yeah. glory no. unless you go to our YouTube channel or Twitter to actually see what we're actually talking about. I here. guess
1: you could do it then. But a couple <laughs> different things come to mind, and now I've I've forgotten them all. Um, But the one is, I know, I know what you're saying about the YouTubers that have like cool lights behind them and they set yeah. up this really, yeah. you know, it, it's, yeah. it's like a, their own little s- studio. And I think, yeah, I think everybody pretty much knows you're talking about me. You're talking about me because you can see behind me, like it's it's well lit. It takes so much time there's, to assemble there's, the there's the boxes, the, the, the plastic of containers yeah. that are stacked. Yeah, you think with... those are leaning uh, <laughs> out of accident? No, no. This is all part of the plan. This communicates things to you. It slants your view into me. Do yeah. you see how it's kind of pushing this direction? And the clothing behind me, you can see some subtle colors there that have emotional intelligence, and they're going to impact you and your perspective of me because you see the orange and then behind that the slight blue and obviously obviously the yellow bag from the lego store that now has shoes in it behind me like those things communicate stuff and i mean obviously there's a sword over my other shoulder and the mic too and then some plastic in a tin can type wall hanging thing. oh look at that that's pretty nifty so yeah yeah so this it's, i mean th- well, it took feels- a lot of care to make sure this looked great. And I'm, I'm just glad you noticed, Mark.
0: I do, I do. I notice all the time. I appreciate your background. I, I appreciate the time you put into it. It's, it's, it really brings a lot to the show. It does. The uh, other
1: thing. I was also, okay. Okay. No, no go ahead. No, well, no, no. from a,
0: I was gonna ask you, because we're talking about your background, your setup, because we alluded to the fact that, like, the reason why I also wanted to try the green screen, because when I'm on professional calls, I don't mind with all my students. I don't mind right. kind of seeing my room. Actually, kind of fun because if they ask or make comments, we can have kind of fun conversation around it. I have found, though, I've tried it in some faculty meetings, and it it's weird where, like, they kind of, like, the, you know, some like in some kind of make some jokes here and there. But then also it's like, you, it's, I don't know, maybe it's just also college faculty. They kind of uh, they, they see my my display case, and they kind of wonder, what is this kind of weirdo? What is he doing back when there? What are you doing? Do, you play with this those kind of, things? Is this guy kind of really professor, and does he have all these, like, these – real expensive action figures behind them. why is that so <laughs> it does cause some questions to come up so that's what i was wondering you does know, anybody from... actually ask and say real expensive action figures no nobody well it's my students do my students know what the yeah, they are so they think okay, so like, yeah, 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 okay so they they understand the value okay cool
1: cool
0: uh but the uh but just from other professionals or faculty and i was wondering for you do you ever does that wonder in your head of like do you have like a a priority level of like if you know you have a meeting with like certain level people or within your company right. or should, outside of your company, make it look really like, all it. right, I got to pull out the green screen. I got to like clean this up a little bit.
1: Right. So never, never. <laughs> I mean, this is who I am man.
0: Now I, I will nice. say, nice. I will say
1: nice. when I do conferences, when I do virtual conferences, I usually put the green screen out and a lot of that is just because I want to be able to resize myself down there yeah. my slides. Yeah. I want that yeah. real estate because I found for conferences, people, people don't like the, what do I want to say? Uh, when you're doing a meeting, like a Zoom meeting, sharing your screen and being like, okay, here's the slides. All right, I'm off to the side. Maybe you don't see me. People know who you are generally when you're sharing your screen in those contexts, right? Nobody's like, I don't remember. It was Mark. Who's Mark? And they understand you because they have familiarity with you. I have found, based on feedback, that people really do like in, in the context of a conference talk when they're seeing somebody they've never seen before, they like to see their face. Yeah, and I think it's because Let's that. you can only like. There's so much more you can determine from the face in communication that once you're familiar with the person, you don't need. But they clue you into other things, and I'm sure there's probably psychologists out there that are saying I'm either right or I'm wrong, and they know why. I don't know why. It's just this mm-hmm. is completely observation. But when mm-hmm. you don't know the speaker, seeing their face seems to be very key. So I like to be able to have the green screen so I can still have my face with the slides or whatever I'm presenting behind me. But without taking up a lot of real estate, like minimizing it and, you know, even the circle thing we talked about, like putting yourself in a little circle, that's great. But like even more just easy to see your face on top of the slide. So I do the green screen for that, mostly because of wanting to make it easy to share what I'm doing and still have me on screen. Um, though I will say for conferences, once you're at the conference level, I'm giving a talk to people who have paid to see it. Mm-hmm. maybe the background behind me might not communicate the best in those in those scenarios. So, you know, there's also that. But one thing I'm interested in, you say you're doing lighting. Mm-hmm. I've actually wondered, like, those Elgato air keys um, or stream keys or whatever they are, Elgato's diffused yeah, light, okay. if it's yeah. actually worth it. Hmm. Because for those who have never seen my office, and I'm sure that's almost everybody listening to this, I have five screens right now in front of me. So to to put like those two panel lights up on either side would be a lot easier than soft boxes and all that, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm curious as if I could just get those lights on either like either wings of my multi monitor setup and get decent lighting because right now this room that I'm in there's a lot of natural light and that's why you can see me in an okay you know lighting. When it gets to be dark out, if I'm doing calls late at night, um, because like something broke and <laughs> we're up late yeah. you know trying to troubleshoot something. It's really like orangey, and just the lighting's yeah. not great. It'd be cool to be able to hit a button, but the problem too when I have the soft lights doing work is sometimes they they glare off of it, and it's, that's not great either. So I don't know. Have you ever played with those type of lights?
0: uh well i have two small ring lights that i bought from amazon oh, okay that are really, yeah, yeah. really cheap like two like uh 10 or 15 lights that are that attach like the back of the monitors i had their usb lights i can just plug in they do have different a few settings you can turn down you know adjust the intensity and also the the color, little bit of the color of the lights or the warmth of the lights so i've been able to control that and i put two of them besides the camera so it actually it lights up my face it doesn't really project like too far away from me so if i did want to let's say if i turn off all the lights in the uh, my room here, it would look really super dark, and it really would just be my face just like lit up. So it doesn't really project too much light past me. That's where I would use like the soft boxes, which I had up and par- was primarily using to light the green screen. So if you really want to do a really good chroma key, you want to make sure you have uh, some good light projected over top of that green surface, so it basically watch- you know keeps the the color of the um, uh, you know the same throughout the screen. Just has you know keep- keeps the-, the contrast level up high with that. So, uh, but also the softbox has also kind of helped add some, some area light uh, around me too. So, but just using some key lights, which does get to be annoying. Because, So when I'm just doing a lecture video or a class or with you or not, like it is a little bit, you have these blaring lights that are just staring at you. I would never have them on when I'm like doing normal work. So especially if I was doing like also a live stream, too, if I was, you know, even with students or just, I don't know, it gets to be a little bit tedious because if I start to look at the camera, you're basically blinding yourself looking at these lights. <laughs> so that does get to be a, a little bit of a hindrance, but they do—they are nice. And I do, yep. like you were saying, if you did have two kind of like rectangle kind of soft lights, LED lights are over to the side or just behind your monitors, you can kind of just raise up, doesn't take up too much space and basically just attaches to your desk. Mm-hmm that's the best setup i find because then it's just easy it's just there you don't have to really worry about it
1: yeah yeah so I'm, I'm definitely looking at that although the elgato's are not the cheap ones on amazon that's for sure
0: which i think this content is viable because every is developer it? nowadays does no, you need have to, be to have right. some between the streams you got to be doing the or even just working remotely right that's true i think i don't know so i don't know
1: but that's where i'm at like i don't care what you where you know as long as it's not like people are <laughs> running behind you you know buildings on fire and it's distracting and stuff like that <laughs> who, who cares if you're in your garage who cares if you're you know wherever yeah. you are i don't care probably true Dude, not not be as self-conscious that should be I don't good care. Yeah. but like i said conferences yeah that's what does it that's what that's what makes people out the green screen so there was
0: one thing i don't know if you made a note of one thing we started talking about last week that you said you were doing at work and event then you sourcing, made it yeah. event sourcing and i was like oh what is that did you look at it all no, I did, did not. You, oh, you're like I'm going to Google. I was waiting that. for then you did. to like. Okay, no, I was okay. waiting for you to uh, let me I know. I saw this before
1: we go down that road. I saw something the other day. <laughs> Blender, because we've done some three. We talked about some three yeah. stuff, right? You like Blender. Yeah, I love Blender, yeah. and I've talked about how I really like Fusion 360. And mm-hmm. I should just like at a, at a more general sense. That's talking about things that are parametric modeling. So I can say I'm going to draw a circle that's this big, and then mm-hmm. I'm going to draw a line that's tangential, and it goes off on the horizon. You know, okay. so, so long. And then I'm going to draw some, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm modeling these things with, with actual dimensions and then I'm extruding them out and doing other operations on them to say, oh, now I've created this thing Whether there's a hook, you know, I'm trying to think the last thing I had a handle for, uh, for a, for a, a, a piece of metal. that's just slipped on that I had to model the other day for the purpose of 3d printing. Right? Well, for it's me for 3d primary. printing or any type of yeah. manufacturing, right? Yeah. So that's why I love that. I saw there's, there's a new parametric modeling um plug-in or something for blender where you go in mm. and you do those like okay. 2d drawings like i'm i'm going to determine like how it's in 2d and then i'm going to extrude it and from that say okay extrude this this far maybe shell it mm. out whatever you want to do so i just found that very intriguing it's like oh that's really cool um you can you can maybe do a little bit of that in blender which is not not cad you know it's mm-hmm. th- it's 3d yeah. modeling but i just i just yeah. found that interesting because that's that's the perspective i'm coming from and to see someone start building that in blender for those times where it's like I really wish you could do this So I know you wouldn't yeah. start with blender if you were going to do there was a tool was it called rhino 3d there was well, rhino a tool use rhino 3d that, is a that
0: primarily worked with like a 2d spline interface yeah, and that's... then it, that, that was where you basically drew out the form that way and then extruded it or laid it or whatever I think so yeah rhino's created, another so. cad another yeah. popular cad which i use uh, that operating. a little that was one of the first one i the first 3d application i used was uh lightweight really? lightweight 3d okay and by, back in the day, I was, you know, just learning about 3D. That was way, I don't know how to date myself. Like, that was like 15 years ago or something like that. Uh, so it was a real long time. And when I was first learning lightweight 3D, and I was just seeing what other applications were out there, that's where I also found Blender, too. But then the interface of Blender I could never get into. And it just it just felt very bizarre comparing it to lightweight I just was never able to make the transition at that time. Uh, but then Rhino 3D was also kind of interesting, uh, concept or just the way that the workflow that it used where primarily you're working with spline, 2D splines, which are just curves, and then drawing out the the form. So like you're talking about, if you're just drawing like a, some type of cylinder or some type of, you know, that you basically start with a very kind of primitive shape, but just do it in a very kind of a set of curves and be able to then take those curves and then extrude them or lay them to basically give it a three dimensional form. Uh, it was a pretty slick interface and the interface was actually nice and minimal and I kind of liked it. Um, from an animation perspective, I didn't. Yeah, I think it was primarily a modeling tool. I've mean, used it a long time, so I don't know what they've, what it, where it's at now. Uh, but it was primarily a modeling tool, so I think the animation was a little bit limited, which I kind of like the uh, both the modeling and animation to kind of be in the same application to uh, to be able to go back and forth. Uh, but uh, but it was a pretty cool application, I, and I do kind of like that workflow. I do think that makes sense, even you know learning three D. Everybody has right. been exposed to even if you're in like say Microsoft Word or whatever, we're probably you've drawn some type of diagram or chart or something like that. So you've worked on some type of 2D sketch at some point in your life. So if you can start sure, with yeah. that and then have some good tooling around that to extrude that, um, I'm not sure, does like Google SketchUp kind of do a similar
1: now that basically just starts off with a, a 3D <laughs> primitive form, right? Yeah, yeah, it's all a permanent form and you're extruding one way or the other. That's why I, yeah. you know, I did I, I put together models and sketch up for some some woodworking builds I was doing and moving mm-hmm. the fusion I'm like oh I like this so much better because yeah. I can just say oh it's this and by this and by this and then just extrude it a quarter of an inch or three quarters of an inch or whatever the dimension of my lumber is and oh now you know it's so much easier to say take this side and then rotate it and like give me a sketch on the other plane and I'll mm-hmm. just I'll just draw it and then when I'm done and I'm like okay that's cool that looks great I've modified it in such a way that I like how it looks well, I want to get plans. Well, for me, how about I just export the drawings? Because the drawings yeah. tell me all the dimensions, so I don't I don't need like a cut list for my own project. I kind of know how it goes together. I just need dimensions. Remember, okay, yeah, that was this long because that fits with that, and I've loved that. And you know, I've used I've used Fusion Three Sixty to create like a like a greenhouse canopy of sorts because mm-hmm. I knew I had ten foot of this material, and I want to bend it in such a way that it will, you know, has a couple cur- or, you know, has a couple points where it's bent. And for sure, I want it to be like two feet high here. And, you know, once I set those parameters, the rest of the angles just, they were derived. Mm. So then mm-hmm. I walk away and say, mm-hmm. oh, if I want a shape that, you know, starts at what we would call ground level of my greenhouse, I mean, it's a raised bed, I'm putting it over, right? And I want it to at least go two foot high before it starts angling in. And I set those parameters, like, oh, then it's just telling you Bend this one at this many degrees. This one at this many degrees. Mm, so you grab okay. a conduit bending yeah. tool, just bend it. And you're done. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. oh, the computer figured all that out for me. That's what computers should do. That's exactly what they're there for, right? So and what's what's the math. name
0: of the uh, what's the name of the application for Blender again? You said for, for the, Blender. The I don't
1: remember. I don't remember what the, <laughs> I, I, I'm <laughs> talking okay. about. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no. Idea. I saw it on uh, what is it Hackaday. I don't know if you if you uh, subscribe to that. No, I don't I, do know. Know. I don't. I don't even know that I subscribe to it. It just happens to be. Uh, they bubble up uh, on my uh, on on my feeds, but no, I saw it the other day. I'm not seeing it now, but yeah, it's 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 something. Um, maybe yeah, maybe I'll find it before the end of the show. And we can talk. Well, about it. Well, you should, so I can actually take a look at it, and be able to. Uh, I mean, you have Google reference it. You should be able to Google these things. Uh, i mean, it's
0: gonna give me some work to do. This isn't the objective of the show to give me more work to do. <laughs> uh, uh, I'll, see,
1: I'll see. what I can find. You talking no, about?
0: I, yeah. But but I love Blender. Yeah, I've used it. Switched over to that from oh, what were we using before Maya. Oh no, Cinema 4D. We Went from Maya to Cinema 4D to now Blender. Which I was we had a talk with some other faculty about using uh doing that transition and going from Cinema 4D to uh, to Blender. And it's interesting too, like how Blender's taken over the industry where it's like, and it took, it, the the tooling has gotten so so good with it, and also so fast where it's it's just amazing for such a free free open source software, you know, and comparing it to these commercial applications that cost a lot of money to license. Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I like, and there's, I, there's a lot of open source stuff in, in film production, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. that is used. Yeah. Because usually
0: too, they, they make their own workflows and they make their own, you know, they usually adopt their, you know, whatever commercial application, but let's say that if a studio is using Maya, they'll, they could, the, with their, the my, the metal scripts and the way that they can, you know, fit it within their pipelines, they mod, and also the interface too. A lot of these applications, you could totally customize the interface and set up your own toolbars and buttons and, and totally reconfigure everything to to fit your workflows. So a lot of these studios take commercial software and basically customize it to fit within their pipelines. And now at Blender, it's kind of nice. This is open source. If you did need to go into uh, and, I don't know, make your own plugin, you know, with Python, or if you wanted to go in and make your own plug with, the, with a C++ and be able to customize it to that extent, you could, because it was open source. And a lot of studios do that now, and then those changes then get fed back into the system, which is, that's the beauty of open source.
1: Right, because for them, you know, a lot of times we look at it, well, the thing that I make with it, you know, that's the work product, right? Yeah. Sometimes in open source, it's not. It's I'm using this one open source library to build an application, and no, so I don't really want to necessarily open source. That's where you get, like, the G, LGPL and and how you have to like it you have to if you're going to use it in commercial you have to open up your source and then it's like well it's friction because that's really what I, that's that's where my intellectual property is that's the thing I'm trying to sell we you can know. argue about whether you should or not there's plenty of opinions on that but in the <laughs> in the perspective of a studio what you're creating is oh this is a story right so yes maybe it puts me at a divan- at a disadvantage in a, in a way if some of the code that i put out there Makes it a lot better for somebody else to be able to render, you know, hair moving in, like whatever hard thing that is to do, right? Mm-hmm. But it didn't interrupt the story, right? I'm not, I'm not giving away the property of the story that I'm selling. Yes, people want it to look real, and and Toy Story Four looks a whole lot more real than Toy Story One, but the storyline is the product there. So if you, if you know, if if it's Contributing to making the industry able to render these things better, then there's a yeah. there's the argument where it benefits everybody. You know, somebody yeah. else then will contribute theirs, and now okay, now that's no longer a blocker, and we can tell our story, which is what we're trying to do.
0: Or so, even from like the the uh, the the way that you know Unreal open sources mm-hmm. there is also interesting too, where the code is fully open source. You could you just have to be you just apply to be you know be part of their their GitHub developer group, which is you know just a, a form you have to fill out. But then once you're in that, you can see 100% of the source, you compile it yourself, which they recommend, especially if you want to run it on Linux, you have to compile it yourself because they don't provide a package for that. Uh, but then it's, it's great. So if you did want to, let's say, either learn, if you like are into, let's say, game engine development, you want to learn for see what they're doing. Or if you've come across a bug and you actually want to see what's causing that, you could take a look at the source code and be able to evaluate now you want to then use their engine and release a product on it, you do have to license it. You know, that is their deal. If you I guess if you make over what, a million dollars, I think they they charge you for to start to take a um, a percentage fee, or you could buy an outright license for that for the engine. So I do kind of like their commercial in licensing model for because it still makes it very, very accessible for somebody to get started and use the engine. But then we start making money with it, okay, I get it. We have them money to start to kick back to the to the engine maker. I uh, totally get it. But I love the fact that it's open source and it's great, which when I use Unity in the past and Unity was, well, I don't know, Unreal's buggy too, in a sense, they all has its issues. But Unity was just like, it felt like, I don't know, there's some things that you, from an interface standpoint, or just when it would compile and build the games or just performance, there was always just like little issues pop up here and there. And I wish I could kind of dig into it a little bit more with the code, but no, you can't because it's, it's totally closed. So that was also one reason I kind of started to move away from Unity because I was like, oh, it just kind of felt like so, so arbitrary in a sense. I couldn't really understand what was going on behind the scenes. If I really wanted to invest, I could try to look at the stack trace that it would give me from the game, right. but then I was like, it was still annoying. I was like, I couldn't really look at the code, which coming from my days with like learning .NET Framework, which I talked about, that was a great phrase. They use kind of a similar model too, where, you know, you have to. I think if you build an application, well, if you build an application top of it, you can recompile and use it. But, like, you know, the framework is still a proprietary framework, but it's open source. So right. if you want to if you want to go look at the source code, you can do that, right? And so that's For such sure. a, a compiled resource to have.
1: Compiled languages, yeah. that's important, right? Like, I'm coming yeah. from the PHP world and just having a discussion with some, some uh the other devs internally today with just this idea of, yeah, it's totally fine. Like, you're using a library? Dig through the code. You don't understand why it's working? Yeah. Read through yeah. it. And you, yeah. can, you can see, oh, that's why it's not. I see what they're doing here. And that's a great mm-hmm. way to learn. Because if you're using someone else's library, more than likely, that's an indication that you think they did something right. So why not learn from that code? Which is great for the non-compiled language that I work with all the time. Mm-hmm. Is any library I'm using, I get to see how they did it. And if I'm, like, yeah. scratching my head, well, why is it doing this? I don't know. yeah so, Maybe so read through the code for- and figure it out. So my view from open source, like, that's where I want. Like, I want
0: all the code to be open so we can all learn from it and also how to kind of help to improve it. But I don't care about the licensing part of that. If we, you know, I, t- I totally if think... If you have to pay for wants- it to use it, yeah. Yeah, because honestly, a business should re- should have that ability, right? So if they want to make money, they've got to make money somehow. And if they, they have an open source project, but they want to license it, so they say, if you want to take our open source code and then build something from it or or integrate somehow, you have to pay us a license. fee. I have no problem with that, because honestly, it, it makes sense if you're building a business and selling a product off of it, so... But as long as the code is free, you're able to, to see it as an individual and to either rebuild it or to be able to learn from the code or to, or to maybe fix it too if you need to. Mm-hmm. As long as you have that ability, that's really what I want from open source.
1: Yeah. So the event sourcing oh, told about we're going the source. All right.
0: Yeah. Well, just because
1: I have no idea about it. What you is this? You couldn't even let it pause for a moment. I was I was waiting for that awkward pause because that we were I talking about last I week. I didn't want to...
0: Oh, that was true. I felt a little uncomfortable there. But <laughs> I also don't want to... I don't want to talk past this because I do right. know that we just we jump from top to top just based we're on all what, what comes list. and
1: pops in our head. Yeah, so, but yeah, yeah. what is event sourcing, Tim? So what is event sourcing? Well, here's the thing. When we talk about a normal application in um, this, I'm going to say that the SiteBuild.io, which, by the way, we're not sponsored by it. But if you go to SiteBuild.io, you'll <laughs> see what Mark is currently working on.
0: <laughs> Which is just a blank white page <laughs> yeah, know, with some
1: text. I, I know when you plan, finally get a product up there, <laughs> I, I love, will not talk about it again. you talking this up. I won't <laughs> I talk <laughs> exactly. Like, once exactly. There once there's something there, there people
0: can sign up for you. Like I'm not, not I'm yet. not are
1: that. you We're doing? Give it. me a break. No. But if you can go to sitebuild.io, <laughs> SiteBuild.io and see that the thing that pops up is the word SiteBuild.io, <laughs> I'm like, that's a win for everybody. <laughs> but you're gonna have you know, like I, I, I know the. Well, I don't want to get into all the, like it would, it's gonna be a build pages on that. But there's gonna be this idea where oh I've got a user right? They've signed up. Maybe they've given me a phone number and email address. I don't know what data they've given me about themselves. Right. And maybe they've even told me about their website. Oh, this is a business website. It's an e-commerce thing. Um, Here's the title of it. And, and some other metadata that you're going to use to then find the best design for them. Yes. But the yes. idea is there's probably going to be an edit button, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. if, what if they say? Oh, you know what? The title of my store changed from Tim's laser cut anomalies to Tim's fun laser store. And I'm going to want to edit that mm-hmm. in a traditional CRUD app. What you're going to do is you're going to load a model, a record from the database. It'll be in memory for a little bit. You'll change that property and then you'll say, Hey, I want to save this. And that's going to probably take what the, whatever the primary key is. Maybe it's my username. Maybe it's an mm-hmm. auto-generated ID, whatever. And it's mm-hmm. going to say, update that row because now the name was Tim's laser anomalies. Now it is Tim's fun laser stuff. Yep. All right, I'm there. I'm with you. That's Learned normal. That We've done that, yes. right? Yeah. But if I said, what was it last week, Mark? How could you tell me? You mean the previous version of it? Mm-hmm. Like a history? Yeah, like a history.
0: Well, unless I was storing that history, keeping track mm-hmm. of it. But if it is just overwriting the record, then... I don't know. How would How you, you keep track of it? Let's, let's, or unless you were logging it out, too. If you were saying like a transactional log, those things get pretty big. Well, that's okay. <laughs> so, that's, so if I was yeah. going to
1: say, this is a requirement, right? Because we have users that are coming to us and saying, it's not working. And we're saying, why isn't it working? And they're saying, mm, okay. because it's forwarding the email to the wrong address. And we're like, well, what is it set to? Well, I mean, it's working now, but it wasn't working last week. And you're like, well, I can see now it's set to your address. I see the current state is completely right. And everything that you're seeing it do is exactly what it should do. But you're telling me the last week is doing something different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you change it last week? No. Did you change it last week? No. Did you change mm-hmm. it? Well, I don't remember. So how do we know if you changed it last week? If we we're going to say, all right, because we have data like that, we need to know what it was in the past. You said a transactional log. Or a history like? table. Okay. I've done that
0: before, which is not. I wouldn't necessarily suggest walk, that, but walk definitely me through for, those. Walk for me certain, through the
1: designs on those.
0: Well, for certain types of records that you may want, that is important to save a history of that. Like when I, oh, it's been a while. So I did this a lot when I worked for the tax administrator, because if there was data, uh, yeah, that's a great one. And let's especially from like numbers, like they put in how much they, you know, how much they made that year or whatever that business made, and they wanna let's say that number gets a change, an adjustment gets made. Well, they want to know what was the change before the adjustment. Now you could also have an adjustment table that gets factored on the original one. But I remember back in working in that those systems that there was a lot of history tables. You know, for almost everything had history, which like I said, I don't know if that's a good design kind of model to use because it does get to be a lot more heavy on the maintenance standpoint because then no number one from a database size perspective but also from is all this history i do remember too dumping the history at some point right. for like having like a time of, let's say this history will be good for three to five years or whatever the time frame is and then definitely you know doing a database command of or just to be i don't know what's it called if i want to then do this not slice it but if i want to basically Take a chunk and, you know, right. just do a do query just to kind of dump a lot of the records to, to, you know from a certain time period to yeah. clean it out. So you would so have stuff like
1: that. You would have the current state saved, saved in a normal way. This is the current state. Yeah. And then you have another table that was like, hey, we changed as of Friday or on Friday it was five. And yeah. then you change on Saturday it goes, oh, on Saturday it was seven before it's what it is now. But what it is now is in the real table. And right now it says and the, 10. And then when we change it to 11, it says, well, on Sunday it was 10. Now it's 11.
0: And then the other method we would use, which I would suggest doing this database, which we did do, is doing like a transactional log. So every time a transaction will get made on the database, you would then store that. You would store or the SQL store...
1: transaction,
0: okay. Or no, you would store the data that was committed to the trans uh, on that transaction. So basically you would st- you would stay, which I'm not sure if MySQL has an automatic, i should assume they have to have it, the automatic way to do this, it's been a long time since I attempted to, to keep track of the transactions on that level. But I know you could either do it, you could do this manually because I remember writing scripts for this where you could basically just make, when you're doing database change, also saving that out to a file, like a transactional mm-hmm. log file. Mm-hmm. But both of these methods, I remember- It was almost like there a, was a query of, log, but not really. There was Yes, there was a lot of pain around both these methods just from a maintenance standpoint. Even though it would solve the problem that you just described, that if a customer did call up, let's say the following week or, pre, or the next month or whatever, and want to reference some data back in the past, if it was- there was a date
1: hierarchy to it, We right. could easily be able to figure that out. Or in your tax one, it's like, hey, last week it said my, you know, my uh, tax liability was 100 bucks, now it says it's 120, what changed? Yeah, Like, well, you we don't know what changed, it's just that's what it is, and it all, everything audits right right now, I don't know why it said that to you last week. Well, why don't you know? Well, and then you could go to your transaction log and be like, oh, we see. You changed. You changed your. You know your your yearly income by this much. That's that's what the difference is. So let's explore that. Let's explore that um, transaction log a little bit, but not the transaction log in the database. What if instead of modeling this as a user profile, because that's what we we're talking about, right? Sitebuild.io, the user mm-hmm. profile, right? Instead of modeling it as a user profile, what if we just said we get user information? And what if we said, they signed up and they gave us an email address, they gave us a phone number, they told us the title of their business, and instead of saying, let's create a new record that has those as columns, mm-hmm. what if we just stored things in a different way and said, all right, on today, the user told us their name, and it was Tim. The user told us their business name, and it was Tim's laser anomalies and the user told us their email address which was sure you want to send me an email it's just tim at right so that's what they said and what if we just stored those though we didn't store the profile we just said these three things happened okay so now our data store is modeled a little bit different it's not a table that is about a user profile it is a table of things the user has done
0: oh let me also clarify qual- quantify or er- not quantify or qualify this. Mm-hmm. Are you using a relational database or is this document don't care. style database you're doing? I don't care. Well, uh, based on what you described, there'd be different ways to design this if yeah. it's a relational or a document database.
1: So let's ignore how it's stored. Stored it in a text file. I don't care. You know, I mean, you wouldn't store You wouldn't store the user profile probably in a text file. You'd be using a all right, relational database. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll go along but with this because right now they just... We could do it in a relational database. I don't care. You could do it in a document store. well, Because I'm well,
0: I, my mind's going from like a performance or implementation. I'm like, well, there's a lot of different come on, come on. pros and cons Don't of doing it. Let's solve
1: those problems until we actually need to. All right. Let's, all right. let's first just. I'll follow you. Let's just. First I'm just, following you in this journey, Tim. Let's, let's, get, let's keep, keep going. Let's keep going. All right. All right. But for, for you know, for the purposes of, of just figuring it out, let's say it's a relational database. So now I have mm-hmm. a table that's not user profile, but I have a table that's, let's call it events. Let's call it that. And my columns are going to have a timestamp when the event happened. They're going to have mm-hmm, the thing that mm-hmm. tells me what the event is. So user set name. yeah. And then they're going to have, well, whatever payload is with that. So when the user sets the name, what do we expect? We expect Tim. Or maybe we expect two things. Maybe we expect a first and a last name. Whatever. We'll just serialize that. We don't have to worry about it being weird and queryable because we don't care. We just care that we stored the payload for the event. And we say, oh, the event... Um, it happened, it was called user set's name. Uh, here's the data that was stored there, and it's a serialized array of first is Tim, last is Lytle. Uh, also, later on that day, he set his email address, and that's just one, it's serialized, but it's one string, it's just his email address. And then the next day, when I come in and I change my business name, we have the same event. It's just user set business name, and it's to mm-hmm. the new business name. So now we mm-hmm. have two user set business name events, one from yesterday, one from today. They have different data, and we have everything I've ever done with your application stored as an event. Now, you can say, that seems painful to deal with, right? I am, I'm feeling the pain as you talked about this too. Are I'm you? I'm envisioning Are the pain, you? yeah, feeling it. Okay, so then it's, we say, let's well, g- is... give me some heartburn. How am I gonna <laughs> figure out what the user's data is? Well, what if we had a class, we'll call it a model, an entity, whatever, the user information class, right? And what if you could push all those events to that class, and you could tell that class, hey, this happened. And that class would respond, say, oh, the username was set, therefore, internal to my memory, I'm going to set the username to Tim. And oh, the user's business name was set, okay, internal to my memory, I'm going to set the user's name to or the user's business name to Tim's awesome laser stuff, right? And I'm just a class that sits there. You feed me events and I change my state to reflect them. Now, when you ask me what Tim's current state is, you just have to pull back all those events from the database and run them against this model. Now we've jumped a couple hoops, right? Because we've said that this model relates to me specifically, and we don't have that capability in our database yet because we said that we just had three columns of when the event was recorded, the event, and then whatever payload came with the event. Let's add another.
0: And these are all, and if you're going to pull back this information, it's still sequential. So you're looking at, say, the latest It has to
1: event. be sequential because yeah, we're, we're doing do it. it in order, right? Yeah. So you get all four events back. And so
0: your query, your that would be a primary, not one of the key, but like a filter. The primary filter is sequential, so you would have to know. You have whether to it be by date, yeah. or by ID, or whatever you're we'll doing. We'll replay them in order, yeah. So and then you're just taking the, the latest one in order. Let's say if you come, if you look at, go to your profile mm-hmm. on the website, and you want to verify what your current business name is, mm-hmm. in order to instantly have that happen, you're 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 looking at that event log or transactional or whatever, where this is being stored and grab the latest one in order to, to, to get that data. Not
1: quite, not quite, right? Okay. Because we jumped a couple of things there. Once you said that it's really important that these events are in order, right? So let's add a column. Mm-hmm. Let's add a column called version and just increment it every time. We'll add a, we'll add a unique constraint there too to so make sure mm-hmm. there's always, you know, a, each one's the next. It, it has to be in order. Wait, the- so from a document standpoint, what you
0: just said makes totally sense from a document standpoint, but from a database, I'm like, wait, so you're gonna have a version table what? Not a version what? table. That's... A version column. Just a version column. A version column of okay within that event within whatever, this event table. Train. Yep. Yep. Okay. Event
1: one, two, three, four, five. So we can always right. know that they're in order. This we... is still giving me more Harper in The way I'm envisioning that this is going to be maintained. So I don't know. All right. All right. <laughs> so, but then we also said, <laughs> you want things like you want things like you want my information. And the truth is, mm-hmm. the user set their um their their name and the user set their business name. That really only applies to the user. Mm-hmm. so maybe we need to create some type of ID for me. Okay, so we'll just create, hey, Tim has an ID. It's user ID 12345. And yep. now we're going to add that as a column to our event too. So now our events are mm-hmm. tracking the time that they happen, the version, which is always incrementing, the ID of me, the user, or more generally, we could just say the ID of any concrete thing we want to track um, mm-hmm. that has events that happen to it. The event name the user did something. The user changed their business name. And then the event data, the payload of what they did. It, it describes what happened. And then you create this class because you said, you want. I want to go to the, the website. I want to see my current profile, right? So you create a class, and that class says, I represent the user's profile. Yeah, you're going to have a getter that says get business name. Sure. Mm-hmm. You have a getter that gets username. Sure. All that kind of fun stuff. And when you pull me back and you make me, well, there's nothing. Get username? I don't know get business name I have no idea I have no context of that how do I get context well I have to look through the events we could query for a related event that matches the name but that's where you're talking about that get no that's okay when hard. you're
0: saving when you're saving the event are you saving every piece of data that is related to that user nope in that just, screen or just that just specific that one? event because then it feels like you're gonna have to. Let's say if <laughs> there's twenty columns of information for that user, and let's say they only changed for like from a transactional say they only change like one or two at a time. You're gonna have to look through multiple records to to get the full picture.
1: Mm-hmm. In fact, let's say we have to look through all of the
0: events. So once again, this is document data. I'm not like worried about this stuff, but like this is how is this done efficiently in a relational
1: data? Oh, it can be done perfectly. It's just a lot of rows, right? A lot of rows isn't necessarily bad, because <laughs> we're just saying pull back all of the events that have ever happened to Tim. And we we get, he set his his name, he set his business name, he set his email address, he set his business name. We've got those four, right? With this one changing what happened at the one that happened before it. I can't use my fingers to show that because mm-hmm. we're a podcast. What is he even thinking? Um, And then we apply those to your class. And we could call your class a fancy name. We could call it like, like a root. It's the root class class of the user and but it's taking a bunch of information um, from these events so it's aggregating them so maybe we'd call it an aggregate route and but but more event once more events take place mm-hmm. that query is going to take longer how about we not solve that until we need to oh my gosh right so now your <laughs> class now your class it feels like you are just building this up with like dreams and rainbows Tim I'm like I need to know how this is actually gonna make sense here now your class goes through and when you ask for the data it says Bring back all the events. Oh, Tim has four events. Let's just tell the class, he did this, he did this, he did this, he did this. He did those mm-hmm. four events. And okay. your class reacts yeah. to it and says, oh, he said his name, now his name is Tim. Oh, he said his email address, now his email address is this. Oh, he said his business name, oh, his business name is this. Oh, he said his business name, oh, his business name is this now. So your but you said class, that's just done in mem. But, but the way you described that class initially was in memory. Exactly, in memory. Within the, in session. So it's not storing that someplace else, it's just Right, but temporary. if you, yeah, exactly. But if you wanted to say, what was his business name Yesterday, you would say, don't load all the events. Just load all the events up until this date and tell me what the state was then. And now, from the outside, we have a class that represents state. We're really used to that as programmers.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we
1: have the ability to set it to state wherever in time it was because the only way you set the state is by passing in events. And what if this class also could absorb the events? And we would say to the class... Hey, store that Tim said his name. And that class would say, all right, I had four events before, and now you gave me a new event that said he said his name. I'm going to apply that. My state's right. And when you tell me to save this, I'm going to look and say, I got four events from the database. I have one event that was not in the database. Therefore, I'm going to write that to the database right now. Boom, everybody's up to date. Oh, memory's gone. We want to rebuild this. Just pull back those five events now, and now that's what state is. So we can we can track state throughout time without any problem. Now to your efficiency well, I, question,
0: I get it, but right. if we're talking about five events it's different from five thousand events. It is, it is on one user. Then make that for
1: well, ten thousand users. Then it's you have really easy to select because we said the user ID. We're going mm-hmm. to limit by that. So whenever mm-hmm. Tim goes back and says, "Give me but my still, history," it's just the for- history of me. Okay, but and are you within a certain period of time? Let's say within all time. Okay. So how many times do you think I'm going to change my profile in such a way that's going to create an event? Maybe it's 100 events. I'm asking you this. Is that really that big of an impact on your database? It could be. It could be. It could be. Okay. I just, okay. What no, my I told you. Let's, let's ignore reads for a second. Oh, my gosh. And let's only do this in writes. Do you have a very write-heavy application, or do you have a very read-heavy application? Okay. In the, in the case of the sitebuild.io, yeah, you have a very read-heavy uh, yeah. application. Yeah, Users yeah. looking at their profile far more than they're writing to their profile. True, true. I would agree with that, So yeah. maybe it takes yeah. some time. Because here's another thing. We could say you can't change your email address in certain cases. You just can't do it. Like once you've confirmed your email and we have okay, emails no. routing to you, you cannot change your email. Okay.
0: Okay. You see, I'm for, I'm for what you're saying, mm-hmm. building the transactional history of the events. I totally get right. that. And the way you describe that. I could kind of be more bought into this if we're going to basically, let's say, build a snapshot. Oh, a snapshot's a really cool
1: word that you just used.
0: The snapshot could then basically give me instantaneous what i want to know what was changed, and then if the event change change update the snapshot but you still have the history there so how about, do you need a reference to go back to the original problem if you're dealing with a customer service issue and want to know what the user did you can still reference that against the current snapshot that you're you're
1: looking at so how about every time i like that that's a great thought how about every time we save our event-based root thing that collects it all and we mm-hmm. look and say, oh, there were two new events. I need to persist in the database. I'm going to persist in the deba- database. What if we mm-hmm. also said, a lot of times the user just wants to see their profile. And the thing they want to see is their mm-hmm. username, the uh, title of their shop, their email address. And how about we just say, well, if I'm saving this route that is aggregated up of events, I'm also going to write to another table. And maybe we'll call this the user profile projection table. And we will take Ooh, okay. our current state and we will project it there. And then our application, whenever it just wants to know the current user, it'll just read it. Say I'm for that. That sounds good. And maybe we don't even have to take our current state. Maybe we don't even have to look at our user model root thing that I'm talking about, this, this fuzzy class thing that aggregates mm-hmm. all these events. Maybe we don't even have to do that. Maybe we can just be a little smarter about it and say, hmm, every time something new happens and we say we want to save this state, we have to take the events and write them to the event table. What if we also allowed somebody to be notified that that event happened? And then we could have mm-hmm. a, a piece of code here that just sits there and says, yeah. tell me when events happen that relate to the user. Oh, the user updated their profile picture? What an interesting thing. I am now going to put the link to that profile picture in the user projection table. Oh, the user changed their uh, their shop name. What an interesting thing! I'm going to change the column that references their shop name and make it the current state. Okay,
0: so I'm liking this. Yeah, now I like it. Let's let's take this step further from an implementation standpoint. Of can I can I go one more? One more? to see if you like th- it.
1: One more. <sighs> Just just, just bear with me one more time. Right? Well, I mean, you already got me there. Now I want to know. No, no okay. Okay. there's one more. There's one more. Because okay. we said, that's interesting. We could just let something listen to events, and then that will mm-hmm. change what we, you're calling a snapshot. Yeah. I wouldn't call it a snapshot. I'd call it a projection. i call something that's else fine. a snapshot, yep, and we'll fine. get to that. Yeah, yeah. But if we could do that for creating these projections, which show us current state that are what we would mm-hmm. call probably our read model. We want to read from this all the time. What if I had something else listen to that because what if when they changed their shop title you needed to do something else what if you needed to kick off a worker to then yeah reanalyze everything oh now I can just listen to that event too I don't have to know that oh when I update the user profile and I change the column that references their shop name I also have to kick off a job to say they've got a new shop name you need to you need to Refigure out what the best, you know, the best UI for them would be because that's the context mm-hmm. of the site build, right? Now you can just say, "Oh, I have a reindex listener that's listening for events, and it says, I ah, 'I don't care about that event.' I don't care about that event. <gasps> oh, that's an event I care about, and that's going to impact me. I got to do something with it. And you have a system in place where it's, it's just easy to track that event." So.
0: That's where I was. That's what my question was going because you, you we talked about service workers. So that's why I was wondering. So which the way PHP works because this is a PHP application. That I'm assuming you have experience with Tim that you're talking about yeah, now, right? Yeah. Uh, so and sing, a PHP being a what's the, what's the term for it? like it's not single threaded but it's uh, yeah. like with it. Well, it's within the process, kind of like within the what the request is made, the process is made. It's like a single process. Oh, Once oh, the request yeah, yeah. yeah. Is done, the, very, process the, ends.
1: the PHP is tied to the request model of an HTTP request. Once yes. it's done, we're done. We don't, we don't. So live. you're
0: talking about long-running processes mm-hmm. in these service workers that are watching for changes to be made and then are running. Any kind
1: of that's doing a, that's an implementation detail, right?
0: No, no, that's what I want to get to because mm-hmm. I'm thinking about because so from a from a web application mm-hmm. perspective, let's say from what the user sees, the user makes this change. That process basically does make the change that we're talking about, but that those watches you're talking about, those are other programs that are running really. that are watching. Or are they triggered from, yeah, and, from the same. In the
1: context of PHP, there'd be a listener yeah. in memory that says, I listen to these events. Oh, I've got it. All right, you're writing events, you're writing events to your event table, and I'm seeing that event, I'm saying, well, that's gonna help. I'm gonna update this read model. Within over the here. within
0: within the same process. Within the same process.
1: And not only okay. within the same process, if you got really crafty about it. it could be even within the same database transaction to make sure they all fail or don't you know succeed or fail um and on top of that uh yeah you could you could make it really efficient but if you do need to do work like hey this happened and now we need well to do- have you
0: have you guys had any kind of conversations about like what's the better model to use can't keep it within the same process or to throw it off to like like long running process that would be like
1: watching for these when we just writing projections to the database it's like it's already mm-hmm. a write in terms of you added events to whatever this aggregate root is so we're writing yeah. to the database there so also yes write to the projection do it at the same time if it's something that says oh because of that because you change something we have to reach out to this third-party service and start doing stuff well then that mm-hmm. will throw in a uh, in a job queue and we will have long-running processes that pull it off the job queue and then execute
0: yeah, so this brings back memories back in the, the my SQL days with uh, writing store procedures. This kind of feels like something I would do or implement with that. Which I don't know if that's we're <laughs> the right model to, to implement that, but that would be something I would do you
1: to, is watch for database could changes. do it in SQL. I'm not saying you <laughs> should do it in SQL.
0: Right, like writing store procedure code. Did this a lot with like was doing like SQL Server 2000 right. development. Right, right. a ton of a ton of store procedures that would be doing like watching for certain tra- type of transactions to occur. And then doing some type of process, you know, do, making updates to other places. But, yeah, it's
1: interesting. Yeah, and, okay. and for us, it's it's great because we can say, well, now, I'm not using our examples because I probably shouldn't, um, but what if you had a bunch of data, and then down the road, you're like, I really wish I could look at that in a different way. Mm-hmm. Okay, you've got all the events. Just replay the events and project something different. In fact, we're mm-hmm. doing that even, like, we, with some of the refactor that we're doing in this, we're able to say oh you don't even have to worry about traversing from this relation to this relationship to this relationship to figure out a relationship that's kind of derived mm-hmm. from other relationships so in a relational database you say well if the user has thing one and thing one relates to this other thing two and thing two tells me the answer i have to go from the user join it to this table join it to that table to find my answer so it's two joins and then finally i get there because you know <laughs> Ooh. Right, right. Start scammering. But if 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 that's if that's how your data is, if we're like, yeah, it's yeah. in this can you know, the user owns a thing, a site, a site has a configuration, configuration has a URL. Okay, the URL comes mm-hmm. in. Who should I tell? Oh, work backwards. See what site you see what configuration had that URL, see what site has that configuration, see what user. But if we do it from an event standpoint, we can say, oh, the uh, the the configuration URL was changed. Therefore, look and say at this point of write. Look and say what site does that belong to? Okay, what user does that belong to? Okay, how about we project that data out to the database and say this URL belongs to this user? Boom. Now for now reads, say, now you can just ask you, a very simple question. When you say, and I totally get
0: that. Yeah, you know, once you have the projection, where I like to use a snapshot, but any any whatever term you're going to be using hmm. for it, you're going to project. We only have today, five minutes but, left. When you say project it to the database, yeah.
1: are you talking about a write? Yeah, are you the just talking? Yeah,
0: or, okay. I'm saying or, project I, I think-
1: because project is the language in event sourcing that relates to taking the data that I have as what I consider state that is based off of events, and mm-hmm. I am now going to. So you're still you're still doing a transactional table. That you're writing to a right, table. right? But project means table. I'm going to build something based off that that is not mm-hmm. the truth. And a projection, okay. I should be able to okay. wipe yeah. out my projections and rerun them. Okay. And I should get in this. Like, they're, they're volatile data in the in the mm-hmm. context of I am not relying on this to be here. I have yeah. events that I rely on. I project to other tables, which they yeah they're they're really useful. I can query them in different ways. This is the data I put in front of the user. But if I went and I deleted them all, I have everything I need to reproject them. And the reason why I say use yeah. project not snapshot is because in event sourcing, snapshot is this idea of where you came from. If we applied this to a banking concept and every transaction was an event, that's great because then you have a history mm-hmm. of the entire account. Yeah. What's not great is saying, can I run this transaction for $5? And you have to pull back 32 years of my bank history, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's not yeah. a great thing. Now with a projection, yeah. you could, because we could be projecting the balance. Every time you, every time you add a, a transaction, we could say, Here's the balance we're going to put in a table that says, it's your account ID and your balance. Your balance is $10. You want to spend five? Yes, you can. But then we say, add it to the events. And that's where it gets weird because the idea is from a, from a event sourcing concept, you need to have all the events there to say, can I add this next one on? So where snapshotting comes in is it says, let's find a way to say you only need the last 25 events because I have a snapshot of state before those 25 events. And it's okay for you to trust the snapshot. So that's in event mm-hmm. sourcing, really, where snapshots come in. They tend to uh, they tend to be used to talk about creating a what do I want to say? I, as well, it's a snapshot of state at a certain point, not projections. Projections don't have to match right. your projections don't have to match your event data or your state. Projections are like, oh, we just want a one to one. What's your account balance? There's way more information than your account balance. But that's all it is. A snapshot is everything needed to get your aggregate route into a position where you can say, "Can you take this next event?" And there's there's a lot more detail in there that I am very much hand waving away. But that's the idea of event sourcing. I like it, but still, from a performance standpoint, I still do worry about this. Sounds it feels
0: like a, this would be great in a document model, a relationship model. I'm thinking, what's going in my head too, like migrations. So if the database changes. It feels like it's just a lot of work. Well, if the if the projections change, it's not a lot of work. No, the pro- the projections. I totally see the sense of that being in a relational database. The where you're storing the events and how what's being changed and just I feel that should be on a document level rather than a relationship
1: level. I don't know. Well, you could do it in a document. You can do it in a relational yeah. database. It doesn't matter, right? The one thing you can't. do... I don't know if it's going to scale, Tim. I don't know if it's going to scale. Well, if you use Mongo it's web scale, man. So. Well, that's true. That's is, what I'm saying. You'd be fine. You'd be fine. <laughs> so no, that's event sourcing in a nutshell. Um, it's totally useful when you care as much about how you got to state as you care about the state that it's currently in. Well, if you think about it, that is your bank account because you want every transaction ever for your bank account. That is a shipping log. Well, where was my package? I can just tell you where it is. Where was it? I don't know. Well, usually you do know, because you know where it went, so. It sounds like UPS. <laughs> 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 My experience actually with UPS is better than FedEx. FedEx is always off by a day or two, but, but that's event sourcing in a nutshell. I don't know if those that are big event sourcers will appreciate the way that I uh, explained it, but I hope it was useful. Well, I learned something new today. I'm not sure if I'm gonna use it, but I learned something new. I like this. This is like Mr. Rogers. Did you learn something today, Mark? I did. I learned about event sourcing, and who knows what crazy knows? things we'll learn next week. Come back and find out.